Welcome to the Free to Choose Media Podcast. Today's podcast is titled Conversation with Philip Anderson. 1977 Nobel Prize winner in physics Dr. Philip W. Anderson and California Institute of Technology Professor of Humanities Dan Kevlis share fascinating and lively conversation. Listen now and don't forget to subscribe to get updates each week for the Free to Choose Media Podcast. You know, Phil, World War II was, in uh, its immediate aftermath, was a really a powerful force in the shaping of physics in the United States and the rest of the world. Uh, where do you fit into that story? Well, I was in, I mean, in in the sense of I was working in a research lab in World War II and just out of college. Which, I which one? Naval Research Lab in uh, Washington. I, I don't feel that I made a great contribution to the war effort. I was Were you at NR, NRL throughout yeah. the war? Uh, well, I was in Harvard until 1943. Mm-hmm. I was only 19 when I graduated. I was one of these uh, wartime accelerators. I volunteered for various things before, well, earlier than that, but uh, they all required that you not wear glasses. <laughs> and so I thought, well, the thing to do is to get through it in a hurry and join a lab. So I did. It was, of course, a, a, a remarkable period. What was, uh, many things were remarkable, but what was most remarkable was the universities after the war. They were very exciting places. Oh, yeah, right. They had a sudden infusion of money. Yeah. Right. Well, they had a sudden, sudden infusion of people. And people, that's there right. In, in certain universities, it wasn't, I, I don't know whether it was true in all of them, but there were certain centers. Where but also an expectation of these people yeah. who had come out of the war, many of them, uh, that they could do things on a scale that they couldn't have dreamed I didn't, of doing. I didn't have any such expectation. You didn't? I, I just really went. You know, I had to do physics, and uh, I just went to graduate school, and I wanted to go back to Harvard because I hadn't had a proper education in this accelerated program at Harvard. So I I knew I wasn't going to waste my education because I I was going to have all all different professors and a different education. But the people were... So you were in graduate school at Harvard? In graduate school. You know, there were... Chicago was perhaps the, the, the big example of the flowering after, after the war, in physics at least. But Harvard was a tremendous flowering. Mm-hmm. There were a very large number of people that you now know. What, what did you work on for your thesis? Uh, it was chemical physics, really. Uh, microwave spectroscopy. That was war, mm-hmm. of course. Because there were no microwaves before the war. Before the, the war, whole microwave right. electronics industry was a war, wartime development. Mm-hmm. We had a little bit of it before the war. That's what I did some of my undergraduate work in. But basically, the idea of atomic spectroscopy or molecular well, spectroscopy. Well, isn't that an example of exciting expectations yeah, after the yeah. war? I mean, you have instruments that permit you to do things yeah, that you yeah. couldn't do before the war. Yeah, of course. but. You know, I knew so little before the war, I didn't realize Well, of realize course, right. You didn't have a benchmark with which to compare. I had no benchmark. Against I'm, which to I'm, compare I'm the just, circumstances. I just had a very, uh, very good but very limited training in physics as an undergraduate. Went off to this research lab, learned about radar. Then I came out, and uh, there were these wonderful tools to work with mm-hmm. and these wonderful people to, to know. Actually, I, you know, the physics department had this very close group of people, you know, great people who worked with Schwinger, like uh, Walter Cohn and, mm-hmm. and Roy Glauber and so on. But I didn't join them. I joined a group that spent most of its time around Tom Lehrer, the, the singer. <laughs> I, was, I was part of the... You mean in his mathematical, wearing his mathematical hat? No, he was a, he was he was a singer then. He was writing. Yeah, I know. I mean, but when you talk about the group, are you talking about are you talking about the people who? Well, were I singing? wasn't studying with him. I was just studying oh, singing see. with yeah, him. Yeah, I see. You were singing with him. <laughs> yeah, I was singing with him. Uh-huh. 
And Lou Branscombe was in that group, who mm -hmm. later became chief scientist at IBM. Right. And Dave Robinson, whom you probably know. Yes, and, I do. And, and he was uh, he was a member of that group. And uh, three or four others. I just <coughs> reconnected with one of them, who was an archaeologist, a man named Monroe Edmondson. Mm -hmm. Turns out I had no idea, and he became eventually a very eminent archaeologist in the Southwest. What did you do after your PhD? Straight to Bell Labs. That must have been an exciting environment. Yes, that was really exciting. Uh, that was more so. Uh, I was there, when I was there for the first two years, it can't really be, but it seemed like half of whatever there was in solid state physics was happening at Bell Labs, mm -hmm. more than half, if, if not. I mean, the, the theoretical staff included <coughs> Shockley and John Bardeen and Charles Cattell, who wrote the book on mm -hmm. solid state physics, and uh, Conyers Herring isn't, isn't so well known to the pub general public, but he is, he is possibly the greatest of, the, of us all. Uh, Gregory Wanier is a very famous name in the field. Mm -hmm. And people kept coming through, you know, and I spent my first year reporting every couple of months to Peter Dubai. Oh, yeah. Who was a consultant. Mm -hmm. The Nobel laureate. Yeah. Swiss scientist. Swiss. No, Dutch. 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 Right. And smoked cigars. Right. <laughs> and he was very Dutch. Well, I think you're right to say that Bell Labs was probably responsible for a significant fraction of solid-state physics at that time. Why? My impression is that there wasn't much solid-state going on in universities. No. Is that accurate? That's right. Why is accurate. that? Why was that the case? It wasn't fashionable. <laughs> well, several things. One was, of course, that it was uh, a bit of a Johnny-come-lately in, in the, well, let's put it this way. Uh, there was a coterie of theorists, particularly, but even experimentalists, <coughs> who had invented quantum mechanics. And then there were the successors who applied quantum mechanics to atoms and molecules. And a great many of them thought, well, done our job. They were, they were like Dirac, who said, mm -hmm. the rest is chemistry. <laughs> so let's go into deeper into the nucleus. And there was this tremendous prestige of the nucleus because of the bomb. And so the, that generation, many of them went off into uh, nuclear physics and then further into elementary particle physics. Beta, sure. Weisskopf, you know. Sure, and they had know, the means to do it after all. Pyros, Pyros, who had been a great solid state physicist, well, essentially became completely a nuclear physicist. And only a few stayed behind for various reasons. Wigner, of course, invented solid-state physics, but he became a nuclear physicist. Only a few stayed behind. So the university people were mostly on their way down into, into the atom. Mm -hmm. But of course, uh, Industry was interested in real, right? Real practical things, right? Because uh, my impression is that the in the uh, the drive to more fundamental particle uh, understanding of particles, you have to move to higher and higher energies, which don't occur in the, in the normal real world. Yeah, right. So, or at least they thought they had to had to move in that right. direction for sure. Mm -hmm. uh, so, in the universities, what was there? There was. Harvard, and of my period, uh, there had been Van Vleck and the Bloomberg and Purcell Pound group and so on, the people who invented nuclear magnetic resonance. So there was a Harvard presence in the field. Uh, Purdue, oddly enough, was a great center of semiconductor mm -hmm. physics mm -hmm. at that time. But otherwise, there was kind of one or two 
there was Charlie Towns, who was actual, actually a Bell Labs alumnus uh -huh. at Columbia, and there were. And then there was uh, there were strong groups in Europe. <coughs> the uh, the English English gang, Mott at Cambridge. Well, actually, uh -huh. he was at Bristol then. Mott, in fact, solid state physics was in the started in the provincial universities in England. And Oxford and Cambridge had gone off towards uh -huh. nuclear physics. But Bragg kept Cambridge out of nuclear physics because he, he very wisely saw that they weren't going to be able to compete. Uh -huh. And then finally there was Russia, this very strange little nucleus in Russia around Landau and his students. And they were very important also. What were the attractions of solid state at that time? I mean, intellectually. I can see why Bell Labs would be interested in it, but why was Phil Anderson interested in it? Why was I interested in it? I was contrarian. I've always been contrarian. Yes, I know that about you. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but I was definitely <coughs> contrarian. And I could see that there was this fashionable field and all these bright people were going into it. And uh, I wasn't sure that it was the right place for me. And I saw, then there was, in a personal sense, I was liked Van Vleck. And uh, insofar as I knew them at all, I liked the group around Purcell and Pound. Mm -hmm. And I did have inklings I think of what really eventually later happened, although perhaps I'm being a little, a little bit... Uh, Hindsight-ridden. Hindsight. <laughs> running, running by hindsight. But I, I kind of put it in my own mind, you know, phrase that no one else ever, I know, that I know ever used. It was kind of the one big molecule point of view. I was thinking one could go at a solid not, or you know, condensed matter, real, real matter, large, large packets of matter. And using the quantum theory, not one atom at a time, but mm -hmm. trying to apply the quantum theory to the whole shebang, whole shebang, mm -hmm. the whole whole uh, ball of wax, whole can of worms. And the things that I did in my thesis were kind of a first first tentative step in that direction. Mm -hmm. And I was looking at some of the literature, reading some of the literature by a few people. There was Freilich in, uh, in England. I didn't know about Landau, but I would have resonated very mm -hmm. much to Landau's point of view. <coughs> so I had this sense that there was something here that could be done. That you could really approach these big things that everyone had kind of done piecemeal and in a sloppy way, and mm -hmm. really approach them and understand them in some deep sense. Mm -hmm. And I also didn't feel it. I didn't feel crowded. No, I was no. I was very much alone. I, I were you? Were you alone? I wasn't alone actually, because uh -huh. there were other people. And there was Bowman Pines in Princeton that I didn't even know about, and there was the Landau group. But not much else. Even when I got to Bell Labs, there was only only so much. Well, yes, there was more of that mm -hmm. attitude. Very much. You hear more. stories, you know, about Bell Labs in those days, that it was really uh, even better than a university, if you will, and the freedom it combined both the freedom of the university and also the resources of a, of, a, of an opulent nature that gave you the best of both worlds. Is, yeah, is that, is that true? It wasn't true when I first went there. It wasn't mm -hmm. quite as true. Uh, we did that. There was a group. There were the young Turks, and then there were the younger Turks. We were the younger Turks. Mm -hmm. And uh, there's a specific group who fought for this freedom and got it. Mm -hmm. And Bell Labs didn't regret it until 20, 20 25, 30 <laughs> years later. <laughs> Right, but they, 
I, my understanding the is that they came to regret mm -hmm. it, if you will, because mm -hmm. of the change in the regulatory environment yeah, and the split up of AT&T yeah, yeah. so that they no the longer could write off their there. costs above That's the right. line. They had yeah, of course. Right. They had a cash cow. <coughs> they had a cash cow. And they cow, had right. a certain fa fairly favorable tax treatment for, mm -hmm. for research expenses. My impression is that the, the world has lost out. Uh, yeah, because yeah. of the change in, That's our in this environment. <laughs> that was our In the feeling. industrial research labs. I mean, the, fig the figures are that they're uh, investing a uh, diminishing amount of money in the basic research side of what they're supposed to be doing. Yeah, I understand the... I mean, I, I have problems here because I understand both sides of this. Mm -hmm. It was wonderful during while it lasted. It wasn't clear that it could last. And why it not? would stay I mean, the same high quality. I mean, why not? They, they, could, they could invest money in basic <laughs> research and give, it I was mean, an because strange. after all, it's, uh, at least, uh, mm. uh, you know, if only mythologically, yeah. uh, basic research is the cash cow, eventually. I mean, the ideal, in an ideal world, when that regulatory chain, change came around, about the AT&T should have handed the Bell Labs to the, to the country, <laughs> <laughs> but the country fired might not have the done entire personnel of, of one or another of the ma of the major DOE labs <coughs> and replace it with Bell Labs. Mm -hmm. But then it would have been operating in but the then federal environment, operating. and it would have become just like another federal lab. Yeah, it would have become like another federal lab. Not to denigrate the federal labs, mm -hmm. there's are islands of enormous quality in e mm -hmm. each of them, and you know, I would be the last person to complain about, say, the Center for Nonlinear Studies at at Los Alamos, mm -hmm. which has done wonderful things for the country. But Bell Labs was was, was something else. Yeah, it was the a other thing. Was I mean, it? It a gem had to, in the crown had to operate in a certain restricted environment. This, it, there was this marvelous environment of, of uh, you know, lots and lots of open-ended problems that you could work on. Research hadn't become corporate, corporatized yet. You mean at Bell? Or Anywhere. Or in general. In general. Uh, for instance, Bell Labs could never, <coughs> actually never work successfully in, in uh, modern biology. Mm -hmm. Modern biology is too large group dependent, too postdoc mm -hmm. dependent. In, you know, couldn't possibly have these big groups with 20 postdocs mm -hmm. and two or three muckamucks. Right. We never did things that way. Mm -hmm. There was no... Occasionally, you see a paper with a large number of collaborators on it, but a large number for Bell was five, five to ten, mm -hmm. and of those three or four would just be preparing materials, and they, their name would appear on paper oh, after yeah. paper mm -hmm. after paper. Uh, when we did tunneling in superconductors, this tremendous program that proved out the theory of superconductivity, <coughs> That was three people, Bill McMillan, myself, uh, well, a, a fourth person, a, uh, a technical assistant, but his name often appeared on the papers. Mm -hmm. Bernd Matthias never had more than three or four people working on, with him at uh, Bell Labs and so on. The collaborations were typically one or two or three, mm -hmm. not bigger. So it was done wasn't cheap in the yeah. sense that we had what we needed, we had, yeah. especially in the way of equipment. So when you say corporatized, you're really uh, talking about the research group itself, yeah, as distinct from the corporation that, in which it's embedded. And of course, we couldn't have done high energy physics even remotely and never did. No. We could no. hardly do, could hardly, we did a bit of nuclear physics, but only on a very restricted scale. Mm -hmm. Because We're, we just couldn't. We did a bit of biophysics, very good biophysics. The uh, functional magnetic resonance imaging is a Bell Labs development. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah. Seiji Ogawa, who mm -hmm. was the, 
is saying is part of the remnant of Bob Schulman's group. Bob was one of the one of the younger Turks mm -hmm. that fought and fought for freedom. And he fought for freedom to do biophysics within the industrial environment. And got it. Right, right. Um, were you like uh, many other physicists of the day uh, in that you became involved in defense advisory work? I would imagine that uh, even more so because you were at Bell, which had, after the Korean War at least, uh, had an enormous uh, amount of involvement in defense contracting. I didn't. Uh, <coughs> that was a personal decision. Uh, I was traumatized by the McCarthy years, mm -hmm. completely. I guess I, I don't know. Maybe I'm sensitive to. Yeah, but you mean traumatized to just shy away from all to involvement. To shy away from in the, all involvement in public well, affairs. Well, there was you know some of my friends were uh, prosecuted <coughs> by the House House Committee. House on American Activities yeah, Committee. Yeah, House on American Activities Committee. Others had problems. Were these well, sort of people at the Signal uh, Signal Corps labs? Uh, no, no. This Fort was Monmouth. A, this was a friend, a friend from oh. Harvard, mm -hmm. and uh, other friends from uh, well, I, uh, there was the famous oath business in the University of California. That's right. One refugee from the oath actually ended up at Bell Labs. Bell mm -hmm. Labs was <coughs> more and less, more tolerant of mm -hmm. uh, refusal to sign mm -hmm. than was uh, the so, University so of California. So this had a chilling effect on your yeah. uh, attitude. We had a thing to sign, but we tested it. Gregory Wanya and I didn't sign it. Nothing happened. Mm -hmm. This was a corporate-imposed loyalty yeah, oath? Yeah, corporate. And it wasn't a loyalty oath. It was a questionnaire. Mm -hmm. Do you belong to any of these uh, following organizations? Following organizations, mm -hmm. and uh, we essentially said no, of course not, and sent it back without a signature. Mm -hmm. And got had a little little flack, but very little. Mm -hmm. So, did you ever then get involved in? I never did uh, in never defense did. advising or anything like that. I no, not really. Not really. I, I well, you're you're rare. You're a yeah, rare bird then yeah. in that regard for post-war physicists. The Bell Labs people didn't, and well, some did. Bernd Matthias was a member of Jason, of course. Mm -hmm. That was much later, though. Yeah, but he he had been involved. Mm -hmm. Well, at least since the fifties. So when you became politically involved in uh, issues of science and technology, mm -hmm. as with uh, SDI, you yeah. did you become involved with that, right? The Strategic yeah. Defense Initiative. But I, I, from the very start, I was outside the. Right, you were you were outside the advisory establishment. Yeah, outside. So the you were you were involved as a, a kind of public citizen. That's right. Mm -hmm. So I was never anything but a public, public interest scientist. Mm -hmm. I was involved fairly early. Uh, I guess the first major involvement, let's see, what was the order? Did ABM come before? Yes, ABM came in the mm. uh, early in the Nixon, or yeah. Nixon administration, 72, mm -hmm. 72, 73. Yeah, and then there was the SSC. That was a safeguard system. There was the SSC. Well, the SSC came along in the late 80s. The superconducting uh, super, super no, the super, the uh, oh SST you mean? SST yeah the super uh, sonic transport yeah mm -hmm. that was also in the early uh, yeah, early seventies in, in the in the right early next that's a really interesting episode because yeah. it's probably the first case that I know of where in principle uh, a piece of technology could have been built and the United States resolved that it wasn't going to do it just because it could be built. And After was, much public debate. And what a sensible decision. And it was a very sensible decision. Look what happened to <coughs> the British. Right. As I remember, the, the arguments against the SST uh, focused to a lot on the environmental impact of the mm -hmm. SST, that yeah. it would be spewing out all sorts of stuff into the lower stratosphere. 
uh, and I don't know, remember exactly what it was going to do, but it was going to do bad things to the, um, uh, the atmospheric environment. It would have been delivering this, well, much worse than the uh, Concorde, because mm -hmm. it was going to fly higher and it was going to use a lot more, a lot more fuel. Mm -hmm. And so a full fleet would have been delivering all kinds of stuff direct to the stratosphere rather right. than letting it float up. Right. It would have right. Been but also, one of the arguments raised against it was why should the people of the United States subsidize the development of this high-tech airplane, mm -hmm. uh, which only um, businessmen were going to use who could afford to pay for the price, yeah. you know, to get to Europe in three hours. Why should we help them get to Europe in three hours instead of going in seven hours from New York the way the rest of us have to do? And why should we survive the, the booms on the ground? That's right, that's right. I've forgotten about the booms. Oh, then you shouldn't forget yeah, about the Yeah, the sonic boom. booms, that's right. That's I, right. I have a summer house in Cornwall, and every once in a while mm -hmm. a Concord Comes doesn't, isn't careful enough, and we, we get the boom. Mm -hmm. Although they, they've been very good about the booms with Concord mm -hmm. after some rather bad incidents over Nova Scotia. But in the end, even the Concorde proved to be a pretty uneconomical yeah, it's a airplane, failure. right? It's a big failure economically. I mean, it does get you there in three and a half yeah, hours yeah. or whatever, but economically it's been a, a drain on the governments of Britain and France. Yes, it was just a terrible waste. So what was the first issue that you became publicly involved in then in science and technology? Well, in science and technology, uh, interesting. Interestingly, the first issue where my wife and I were really at it, except for politics, we, we've always been political, uh -huh. but the first public interest issue was not really a science. Well, it was a technology one. Mm -hmm. What was that? The jet port. In, there was a move to build a fourth jet port. Mm -hmm. in, in the greater New York area? In the, for the greater New York area in something called the Great Swamp which is a, well, it isn't a great, a very, a very great swamp, but it's a swamp mm -hmm. behind the uh, uh, Wachung Mountains north of here, mm -hmm. a remnant of, an, of a glacial lake. And practically the only empty space in the uh, entire, uh, within that, that uh, radius of New York. Uh, we, the, at that time, it was really fairly unusual for serious public op opposition to develop. I think that was in the early 60s. That was before the Great Vietnam mm -hmm. mess or any of that. Uh, we were, in fact, yes, I know, it has to have been before 1963. It was in, in the late 50s. But it was a crazy idea. Uh, it was supported, of course, strongly by the Port, Port of New York Authority, which is this, what we now call a Quango, mm -hmm. quasi-governmental organization mm -hmm. with uh, no, <coughs> no true oversight from the, uh, from the government. And they're very highly, uh, highly paid lawyers and uh, consultants and so on. But I first began to learn about the utter incompetence of officially paid consultants, mm -hmm. or not incompetence, they're very competent mm -hmm. at supporting the point of view yes, of people right. pay they them. do a good job at that. They do a good job at that. But fortunately, we had Bell Labs, because one of the, uh, the president, uh, a friend of ours, uh, Jim Fisk at that time, mm -hmm. lived right on runway number one. And uh, he, he put the Bell Labs uh, resources, not money, of course, but the people. He led the people in uh, questioning all the assumptions that went into the engineering projections for mm -hmm. that airport. And so we had infinitely better projections, infinitely better resources in the way of, of advice. And, uh, the other thing was that what northern New Jersey did not need was the development that they were trying to sell us that we wanted. <coughs> I mean, they were putting it down 
right in the middle of the, uh, the largest concentration of investment bankers in the world. Because <laughs> it's the shortest commute uh -huh. into Wall Street uh -huh. along, the, uh, along the Lackawanna Railroad. And uh, what they didn't want was development. What none of us wanted was mm -hmm. development. And the towns were already growing faster than we can possibly accommodate. Mm -hmm. And we, so we did economic projections that were also rather horrifying. But actually, the, the way we won was, well, a combination of those two things. But by propagandizing about the noise, which in fact wouldn't have been as bad as we made out, a little bit dishonest on the noise, but we propagandized very well. We made a record mm -hmm. and it played inside a hall. It was it was played at the honestly at the correct DB, but it just made an extraordinary impression. I see. Played in what the, was in on the, the record? Just, was on? just jet noise. Mm -hmm. The other thing is we knew, but the Port Authority didn't that the next generation of airplanes were going to be quieter. Fortunately, they didn't know it, or they were used to it. And the other thing is we used politics. We set the South, South Jersey against North Jersey. Mm -hmm. And that, that worked very effectively, mm -hmm. too. Because the, the project would have required the support of the Jersey legislature, right? Yeah, and required the legislature. And South Jersey opposed to it because the resources spent yeah. State from drawn from the entire state to benefit northern New Jersey. That's right. Very shrewd. Whom they felt didn't need it. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and they were right. Didn't mm -hmm. they? We didn't want it. They wanted mm -hmm. it. They were they were we had been able to make when, when was was this all going on, by the way? Fifty nine, I think. Mm -hmm. We were living still living a little away from the jet port, but we had close friends in the in the actual area. But you know, Representative Freelinghuysen, the you know the hereditary representative yes. in uh, Congress, he lived right in the hill that they were <coughs> going to bulldoze into the swamp. So he was to opposed make. to it, also. Of course. Mm -hmm. the, uh, and finally, we had the Dodges of the Dodge Estate. They bought up a lot of the. Mm -hmm. They and a number of rich <coughs> neighbors bought up a lot of it and gave it to the federal government, and that settled the matter. So if you want to oppose development, major developmental projects, it's a good idea to be right in the middle of uh, a bunch of wealthy and influential <laughs> <Yes>. people. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> but we were right. I mean, uh -huh. the nice thing is we were right, you know, especially on the projections. <coughs> they, had, they said New York was to be the, uh, the transportation center of the world because everyone would have to change planes in New York City. On the drawing board, in fact, beyond the drawing board, just being manufactured were the planes that were going to make it possible to fly direct to Chicago and Detroit uh -huh. and the West Coast. Uh, two or three things like that. And uh, it just the traffic projections were 100% wrong. Yeah. And all the projections on the there, they made no account, no uh, <coughs> made no uh, allowance for the improvement mm -hmm. in landing technology, in blind landing technology, and so on. So, where what political action did you go on to from there? The next one was the well. Of course, we all we all protested the Vietnam War, mm -hmm. or not we all, but there was a, a lot of people. Strong uh, anti-Vietnam. Mm -hmm. There were, you know, within the labs and within even the academic community, sure. there were great divisions sure. over Vietnam. How about the first ABM system? And the first publicly conflicted ABM system we joined, uh, or a group from the labs. Mm -hmm. You know, in the march at the same time that MIT was having the March Fourth Movement mm -hmm. and so on, uh, Bell Labs developed a movement. It was a very strange thing to happen in an industrial laboratory, you bet. but you we bet. did. 
we had an organization, we had a newsletter, we had leaders. And in the end, we collected money and we signed all our names to a, an ad that was supposed to appear. Unfortunately, our, the man who was supposed to see to that got <coughs> himself involved with a political trickster from the Kennedy staff. Mm -hmm. And this political trickster managed to splice this all over the front page of the Washington Post the day before the Senate vote with a big headline saying, look who's, in, who's against the ABM, mm -hmm. the, the laboratory that is going to be the prime contractor for it. That must not have made you popular. No, we were not popular. <laughs> And one <coughs> physicist who's still at the labs and still a very eminent astrophysicist very came very, very close to losing his job over that. And was he swore s silence for at least 10 years. Yeah. <laughs> Did he keep to his pledge? Yeah, he kept to his pledge, but it's, it's 10 years past and he's in, involved in various public mm -hmm. things now, but mostly science. Mm -hmm. What was your involvement in the SDI debate? the Strategic Defense Initiative in the 80s? Well, I was lucky, in a way. Uh, when the Cornell petition drive began, there was, and as you may remember, the, uh, the main scientist's response to that, it wasn't a petition, it was a pledge, mm -hmm. was to sign a pledge saying we would not accept uh, SDI funds for right, research. Right, I remember that. And this pledge drive started in, in Columbia, in Cornell, but it's rapidly diffused in the Princeton group. <coughs> uh, it reached Princeton, the speech was in March, 83. The pledge drive got going in the summer. It got going and most of the people here were away. Mm -hmm adjacent at various other <laughs> places because we have a very large representation on Jason. Mm -hmm. So there were only one junior, one younger professor, Peter Myers, and myself of the, of the staff available, and so we, <coughs> we took over and for that summer, and therefore, willy-nilly, we became the leaders of the pledge drive for Princeton which got me into the position of writing an editor or an, an article for the Princeton Alumni Weekly about giving the standard arguments against the SDI, which was, well, that was one of the great public relations coups in, of my life, at least, because George Schultz reads the Princeton Alumni Weekly. That's because he's an alumnus, right? He's an alumnus, and he's a very <coughs> loyal alumnus. And he, he reads the Princeton Alumni Weekly more than he reads the pages of the New York Times, as far mm -hmm. as I can tell. Mm -hmm. So he directed his people, I'm sure it was his people and not he himself, to write a refutation of what I had said. And the Princeton Alumni Weekly gave me a chance to rebut this. Mm -hmm. And since it was written by people who had just accepted the, the press releases, it was been extremely incompetent. Mm -hmm. And it was very easy to rebut. So I, I think my rebuttal was even was considerably more effective than my mm -hmm. original article. So did you change George Schultz's mind, you think? No, of course not. No. But I, it worked out very well, and interestingly, it caught the attention of uh, Le Monde, mm -hmm. and so the whole uh, the whole dialogue was reprinted in Le Monde Diplomatique. Yeah, remarkable. And I was invited to Paris to a big dinner at mm -hmm. a very good restaurant in, on the left bank. To uh, you went, of course. I went. Well, I was there anyhow. Mm -hmm. So uh, it appeared in Europe. They were very shocked that a scientist would dare say anything against his government. 
Yeah, the French expect the French much are, greater deference. Yeah, the French are <coughs> on the part of their experts. That's right. I mean, it was than we do. I think it's still true, I and mean, that it's quite unusual for a French French scientist to go mm -hmm. public in this way. Mm -hmm. Well, a lot of French scientists, of course, work for the government. Yeah, because the whole university system is a government yes, system. Yes, of course, it's a government. And then system. the national labs are government labs. So they have, well, <coughs> actually, it, it isn't true. There are kind of the professional actus, activists. The French left is, of course, always out in public. Right. But then... But there are not so many scientists out they, there. Oh, there, there are some very leftist scientists. Mm -hmm. I, know, I have one who's still a Stalinist, I believe, one friend. Mm-hmm. And one other who is one very dear friend, who was certainly a leader of the days in May. Mm -hmm. uh, I think remained a Maoist at least until quite. So, what what do you think of the revived revival of the initiative for at least a limited strategic defense? Initiative? I think it stinks. Mm -hmm. <laughs> don't I don't. I don't know what you think. What's your... Well, I think it's foolish. Yeah, I think it's foolish. Um, it doesn't take much to overwhelm a strategic... Mm. I mean, the an, arguments, an anti-ballistic missile system. The arguments are still there. I mean, <coughs> it is immensely more costly on the margin than in, in any possible countermeasure. Mm -hmm. And will always be. Well, not necessarily. You know, one, one mustn't project yeah, one the can never say never future. technologically. One can never say never. But with what they're talking about, it's always much more costly in the, on the margin. And uh, I don't know. Well, I think they are much more likely to be deterred by the mm -hmm. thought that we will visit the same on them. Yeah, that's right. Mm -hmm. That's right. That's what worked all these years. It's what's worked all these years, and it's going to, certainly going to work in China. Mm -hmm. China is no longer run by someone who believes <coughs> that he can win a nuclear war. Mm -hmm. But and let's we know uh, the North Koreans are crazy, but they can be very nasty and crazy in lots of ways. But they don't want to visit destruction upon themselves. But they don't want to be really completely leveled. Your uh, political activism, of course, uh, during the 90s was focused on the <laughs> superconducting super collider. Yeah. This uh, hugely increasing, uh, increasingly expensive mm -hmm. uh, accelerator, which is going to be 54 miles in diameter and in Texas. <coughs> and was projected at the time it was killed off at about 13 billion. Mm -hmm. uh, I, I remember the arguments that you put forward against this were seemed to me to be pretty telling, namely that the amount of money that would have been expended per particle physicist was roughly 10 times the amount of money by the federal government was roughly 10 times what the, the money that was being expended on, say, condensed matter physicists or other physicists which seemed to me uh, a uh, pretty decisive uh, argument, given that the solid state or condensed matter physics does a lot more for the world uh, in some both direct and indirect sense and particle physics does. And the Congress killed this off. Um, uh, I don't know if it would have done so if it hadn't come to a head, this issue hadn't come to a head in the early 90s when this country was in a state of recession and people were concerned about the con uh, excess concentration of resources in high energy particle physics. But uh, you played a decisive role, it seems to me, in your congressional testimony and in your writings. I don't, I don't think I played. Well, let's say an influential role. role. It is still true that every once in a while, indirectly, my wife will run into an old school friend or an acquaintance, and this acquaintance will have a young relative who's married to a particle physicist. Right. Says, oh, that dirty Phil Anderson. <laughs> yeah. Damn him. He has two, <laughs> two horns and a tail right. with a fork on it. Uh -huh. 
So I'm considered among But you weren't alone, after I all. I was not alone. Uh, there was uh, Schrieffer from another Nobel laureate from he wasn't California. Really, he wasn't out in public. Well, he did testify he did against testify. it. Yes, he did. And yeah. so did Nicholas Blumbergen. Yeah, yeah. Uh, all of you condensed matter physicists. Actually, the most effective testimony that I, I read was by Ted Jabal and John Rowell. Mm -hmm. And at least it was the best written. Mm -hmm. And the other thing I tell these people in extenuation is that I've testified before the Senate, and it was the House that killed it. <laughs> <laughs> the Senate never was going to kill it. Because no, it always Ben got Johnson was it still, always in, got a raw, on, the raw, still chairman of the committee. Yeah, it kept getting revived there, but it didn't. It did not get revived it in the Senate the last time around. That's right. So the House did. The House and, it, and Ted, right. my friend Ted, did testify before the House, so it's right. his fault, really. Right, right. But uh, yeah, I was. I'm not ashamed of that testimony. Do you think that the SSC should not be built at all? I think they had it was built in, I guess I would be very conflicted if I were, for instance, in the European community. Mm -hmm. Although I know CERN has been terribly wasteful and has been sold for many of the same wrong reasons in, in the European community, nonetheless, the other accelerator, this is the European accelerator of the, of the same sort, has always been managed scientifically in a much more, uh, much more measured, much more mm -hmm. planned fashion. I mean, because of our complicated political system, this was pushed through by political maneuver from the top. It was very much a an initiative from the Reagan administration down to, yes. a, to Congress rather mm -hmm. than that's right. and to the scientists. That's right. Well, but the, the scientists were, I mean, the high energy particle physicists were certainly pushing for it, right? Not all of them. No, well, maybe not all of them, but people like Leon Letterman. Yeah, yeah. Who was the head oh, of yeah, they were, they were. The Reagan administration didn't in, in, invent this idea all by they itself. They didn't invent the idea all by itself. Well, On the other hand, the manner in which it was done and the, you know, the push using uh, influence direct on the president and using the president's mm -hmm. own naivete about, mm -hmm. about such matters. Well, it seems to me that seemed, uh, it seems to me that, the, that the, the intellectual objective of the SSC is worth doing. My objection to it was to is to the idea that only the United States need pay for it. That's right. I mean, it's a it's a great enterprise mm -hmm. for human beings. But well, it just didn't seem that. So it ought to be a multinational project. The CERN was going to do. I mean, this, sh this certainly should not be done in competition. With no, CERN. I don't think any longer. You, it, it's just a foolish waste of resources That's to right. do these enormously expensive uh, high tech scientific projects um, and they're, they're just as, a, as a single nation enterprise. Mm -hmm. They're too just, expensive. Just done like, you know, and it was too much like a project of, uh, that belonged in the National Football League rather mm -hmm. than in the, in the scientific community. Mm -hmm. It was very much, wow, let's do this. Mm -hmm. And let's do it in the biggest and splashiest possible way. Not, not let's do it. Let's think it, think it over very right. hard. Let's bring our friends in the other sciences along with us. And uh, well, there was a lot of hokum and misrepresentation yeah, about of misrepresentation. all, the, all the, the benefits that were going, social benefits that were going to. Yes, that's what got Nico against it, of course. Blumbergen. Yeah. Yeah. The claim, the claim that uh, they invented that, magnetic that, that, right. image. Well, not only that, but that even more important that they invented um, superconducting magnets. Yes, that's right. That came out of uh, high that's energy physics. That's what got us and, angry. And that's just wrong. Mm -hmm. Absolutely wrong. Yeah, superconducting magnets have been developed for MRI mm -hmm. and by us. Yes. And they were that's invented right. at the Bell Telephone right. Laboratories by Bernd T. Matthias. You know the. 
thinking back over your career, you're a, a pioneer, it seems to me, in having um, uh, refrained, if you will, from sort of in-camera advising of the government and when you felt um, politically motivated to uh, make your case as a, in public, uh, starting with the, the jet port and then moving on to the ABM and then finally uh, SDI and the SSC. Uh, that seems to be much more characteristic of physicists and scientists in general, at least in the United States these days, to carry their claims and their arguments and their cases to the public rather than to content themselves to uh, uh, intra-bureaucratic uh, contest. You think that's a healthy development? Well, yes. I mean, this early experience with the jet port certainly gave, gave me a very strong early lesson in the inefficiencies of uh, internal advice mm -hmm. solicited from me. Though it can be done well. I mean, I, I lived to see the National Academy, for instance, change from the one mode to the, to the other. Mm -hmm. they, they had a set of <coughs> reports on the... Uh, uh, supersonic transport that were shocking, shocking in the extent to which they relied on mm -hmm. internal, entirely internal to the advice to the uh, aircraft industry. The way they minimized the boom, they did boom studies, and mm -hmm. then the, the way they minimized the, the response to those mm -hmm. in Oklahoma City was just incredible. Mm -hmm. Nothing. So they introduced, before the Nixon administration, they actually introduced a, uh, an internal review committee. I'm afraid that, may, that system may have broken down to some extent, but for 20 or 30 years it worked very well. Of course, the problem was then that there was little or no trust between the scientific community and the Nixon administration. No. No, so they uh, a virtual divorce. Yeah, yeah. So the uh, the academy was used by Congress as its only only reliable source. Well, I'm sorry we didn't get to some of the other stuff that we we needed to talk about, but I'm afraid that uh, time is beginning to run out. Right. Well, we covered, a number, we covered a number of things. Yeah. I'm sorry we didn't talk more about your, uh, your concerns. Well, in that's a way, okay. My you, concerns I, are your concerns. I can, yeah, <laughs> I know. As a historian of science, right. uh, your concerns are in a way my, my concerns. Thank you. Yep. Want more episodes like this? Don't forget to subscribe and get updates each week for the Free to Choose Media Podcast.